Rodney. An- anodized aluminum metal tip pen. <laughs> I enjoy when you jump right into it. An anodized aluminum metal tip pen. Is that what I heard? You nailed that. Man. You nailed it. I wasn't even listening. That's the crazy part. So my new pen is exactly that, and there's no ink. This anodized aluminum oxidizes when it hits the paper and leaves writings. Does it write Uh, super smooth? Like, does it does does it end at some point? Yeah, I think the tip will eventually wear out. I'm looking at it right now; it is wearing down. So I think, uh, but the tip comes out, so I can just put a new tip in. But it's going to last for a while. Um, this one can be smooth. It gets a little rough at points. I think there are different. I'm going to I'm going to become an anodized aluminum snob as I find different <laughs> different tips that write better. But Why uh, it's kind of cool. Ink? Just it's just cool. I want to be different. <laughs> Welcome back to the More In Common Podcast. I am your co-host, Keith, with this February edition of Season 5 in 2021. Rodney, what's going on, my man? Hello, Governor. (laughs) I just, uh, you know, hello. How are you? This is your reminder that Keith and I, More In Common, we're all about compassionate conversation. One of the cores to that idea is that people deserve compassion just because they're people. For no other reason doesn't mean they're right doesn't mean you agree with them and anybody can do this anytime it's free and we try and practice it here in this podcast hopefully you get a chance to flex your compassion muscle today that being said we're about to have a really amazing conversation aren't we keith um a really amazing conversation we are very very fortunate to um have the one and only Kristen bell join us for today's conversation. Now, you likely know Kristen as the super accessible actor and entrepreneur who is hilarious and extremely entertaining. But one thing we collectively don't get to see too often with Kristen is her philosophical way of thinking and how she makes her life the best she can for her family, for the world, and for herself. So we take the next 90 minutes to dig into so many things from where her compassion comes from to how she avoids resent with open and honest conversations with within her marriage. We talk about being an empath and how she decides to get involved with the films and businesses she chooses. Do you know what your underlying philosophy for making these decisions is? Well, this conversation gets into all of that and so much more. So we're super excited to bring it to you and I'm not gonna delay any longer. But I am, but I'm gonna go quick. And I just want you to remember, you can find all things More In Common at moreincommonent.com. Moreincommonent.com. I'm going to stop now. Go listen to Kristen. Cheerio, mate. I believe you have a mutual respect for the fact that every individual living on this planet is a mosaic of their own experiences. So you, you have to know that even though you, this is how I view it. I'm connected with an umbilical cord to everyone, but their mosaic is different than mine. Their traumas are different than mine. Their ACE score is different than mine. You know, the, the score that you take about childhood trauma. Yeah, hundred percent. Their ACE score is different and that will cause and effect lead to different uh, feelings that they're having about issues that might not affect me. Or, or do affect me and don't affect them. They're, everyone is a mosaic of their own experiences. I want to tell you about something pretty amazing that we stumbled upon. A little ways back, we interviewed this amazing dude, Kwame Bowen, and he shared with me after the episode that his mother is a poet. And what's awesome about that is that he has all of her writings and all her poems but what he doesn't have is her reading them that inspired keith and i to then start recording videos for our daughters and as we started recording those videos we started running into the challenges the challenges of 
Where are we going to send them to our daughters? How are we going to get them to them? Where are we going to save them? Is it going to be Google Drive? Is it going to be OneDrive? And then along came GiftPod. It's an audio memory that you can record and give as a private podcast. What they're going to do is edit, add music, and produce the audio that you provide them into a professional podcast that you can share with your family members for any purpose. We use it for our daughters in the future. All right, so check it out. In the write-up for this podcast, you're going to see a link to GiftPod. If you use promo code MIC10, you're going to get a discount. And uh, leave some amazing memories for your friends, family, loved ones, maybe for yourself. Why don't you time capsule this for yourself? I don't know. So check them out. Giveagiftpod.com. MIC10 promo code. Now, if you're not familiar with the amazing Kristen Bell, whom we're excited to have on the show with us today, she is a mom, she has an incredibly strong marriage, and she has some serious acting chops. As she starred in the NBC series The Good Place opposite Ted Danson, she played the role of Anna in Frozen and Frozen 2. She has starred in Bad Moms, Bad Moms Christmas, and broke out in her role as the one and only Veronica Mars. Now, her list of acting credentials is long and impressive. I'd love to list them all for you. But I really want to talk about what she's doing beyond the screen as well. She recently became executive producer in the second season of Encore, which she also is um, on screen, but you can find that on Disney+. And if you don't know, she is an exceptionally successful entrepreneur. Um, her entrepreneurial spirit is awe-inspiring. She recently co-wrote the children's book, We All Need More Purple People, which you will need to check out even if you don't have kids. Uh, she and her husband, Dax Shepard, started an amazing baby product line called Hello Bello to get affordable, high-end baby products so no mom has to decide between a budget and diapers. And if all of this isn't enough, she has partnered with Lord Jones to create a CBD line of oils and lotions called Happy Dance with the goal of accessibility beyond just boutique shops. Now, I'd keep going. But the resume is so long, and I don't want to hold up this conversation. So, but there's one thing that we have to talk about before anything gets real serious. That's <laughs> that's so important because you you mentioned on Hot Ones that you mentioned that no one cares about Anna. Yeah. Now I don't know if you really do. You really feel that way? Before I yeah, for, I mean, yeah. I I perhaps that's a little dramatic because there's such an easy retort of people care about Anna and they seem sincere when they say it. But if I don't think people care about Anna in the way she deserves to be cared about, she is the emotional barometer of that film and the heart center. What else is? flashy and vulnerable and often the squeaky wheel. Would you say Anna is the anchor of that? Like yeah. she's the grounding force oh, yeah. of that. Yeah. yeah. So we as 38 year old men like to assess our personalities based on Disney movies, in yep. particular Frozen. Frozen. Okay. And so I want to say on with all sincerity that after Frozen 2 came out, Rodney says, Elsa, I am Elsa. And I, I am Keith I am, am 100% Anna. And I care deeply about Anna. Yeah. And I like she is me. She is my like my sole Disney character. So I want you to know that. And a, we're basically siblings. A 38-year-old man in Cleveland thinks of himself as Anna. And he cares about her deeply. I appreciate that um, because there is so much of me in, in that role. And especially, you know, there's a, the team we had on frozen. It, it, it was an incredibly, incredibly special team of creatives that I love so, so dearly. And um, you know, our uh, writer director, Jen Lee, along with Chris Buck, who co-directed it, but Jen Lee, 
before we had a second film, sat down with me a couple times, and she had been trying to figure out how to write the second one, what to write, because it can't just be Frozen 2, Episode 2, Elsa loses her shoes. Something <laughs> inconsequential. You know, like, it's, it's what, what is it? What yeah. is it at its root yeah. system? What does it mean? Mm-hmm. And um, we, she had been journaling. At, I don't know if you guys know this. She had journaled as the girls, as a writer. Oh, you months, mentioned that in one of your, yeah, you mentioned that. Which I find so fascinating because I would never have the willpower. I can barely get through Monday's New York Times crossword <laughs> without putting it down and be like, well, I don't know the last six. I'm done. <laughs> um, I'm not going to put in any more effort to this. Um, but she then, we then sat down and she said, what do you see Anna doing? Where do you want her to go? Cause there, cause I, I had a, uh, thankfully I was allowed to have a lot of say over her in the first movie and what she should do and how she should react. And, um, I said, I really want her to struggle with her codependency. Mm-hmm. And I said, I really want her to have to face that. I want her to be alone at some point and figure out who the hell she's living for. And also I want her to apply my mantra um, of just do the next right thing that you have one step in front of you. And if you open your eyes in the morning, the next step is just taking the duvet off of you. And then the next step is putting your feet on the floor. And the next step is walking to the bathroom. And the next step is brushing your teeth, but it's always just one step. And all you have to do is the next right thing. And I just find it so, um, uh, satisfying and, flattering and life affirming and, and sweet that they chose to put so many personal aspects of sort of all of us into the second film. It made it a lot more meaningful. That is really cool. Cause that do the next right thing is the thing that really hit it. Like even I got out of the movie, I was like, Keith, Oh my God, honest you bro. Like, cause that's straight Some- up like the thing that in our friendship I've admired about him. I'm like, man, you just like do the right shit. Like, just do it which is something i greatly admire like i don't run into people like me often the and when i mean that is there's this weird inherent sentiment of what is right like i i don't know how to explain it this came out in your conversation with dax and you you try to quantify it in in a real way of determining between suffering and happiness but at the end of the day, it just makes sense. Like you just do it because that's the right thing to do or you don't do it because that's not the right thing to do. And I can't necessarily define why that is. Like I can just, it just is. Like it just makes sense. I don't, I don't have anything more. And I know I would love to bottle it up and tell other people like this is how you make the right decision. But it's just like it just just make the right decision. I mean, my right? eyes are so lit up right now because I, I, you two are, though you, you're more similar than you think. I think oh, we so are to both of you. But like, I, I would say I have had immense trouble articulating what the next right thing, how to the math behind it. Yeah, because there's a a, a big portion of my personality that has no words. And that it's the reason I ramble. It's the reason I'm highly emotional. But my temperature, I have a different uh, language in my body and it's all feelings. And there's plenty of times in my marriage where my husband will say, what's wrong? Or are you feeling something I can sense? Either you're very happy or you're very sad or you're very something. And I can't find words because I haven't found the exact feeling yet. And unless I identify it as a feeling, I can never have to sit with the feeling for Mm. a while. And I feel like sometimes when I say do the next right thing, it's not actually, there's no math to be able to explain it. It's a feeling and it's, it's a guttural thing that I know. And it's not, I mean, you can even like, there's so many side arguments, right? Like, well, is it Kantian? Is it utilitarian? Like, is there a philosophical um, evidence for it or a description for it? But there's not, it's just, it's a feeling. And sometimes I don't know how to put those feelings into words. So I can't bottle it up and explain it, but I know it with every fiber of my being. It's interesting because I, what I've put together from hearing Keith talk about it and then like my mistakes in my life and in my relationship, like I go back and I think about it and it's like, oh, but there was a voice. Like there was a thing in me that was like, yeah, you know what's right. You're just not, I'm overriding it with something. And it's like, yeah, I think it's there, but it's like there, it's a feeling. And so like for me, it's like leaning into my intuition 
helps me get to that just do the right thing. So um, my personal philosophy has been for years is just do, do the right thing. Um, so when that came out, it's, it's, it's just a constant reminder, like, you know what it is, do it. Because one of the things, and I think this is something that I have an extreme admiration in you, that you have been able to access that for a really long time, but not just access it, do something about it. So the, the difference I, I know for me is I know what it is, but depending on what it is, especially if it's for me, I will defer against it because of a history of insecurity or a history of uh, being told what I'm supposed to do versus this. Yet for you, you, you just had it. Or at least you were put in a position to find the belief in it at an early age. Like where does, have you ever thought about what enabled that to live and breathe in you for, for since, I mean, as far as we know, since you were 13? I have. And uh, the answer is uh, shockingly practical. I think, number one, I'm pretty stubborn. So stubborn when it comes to I have decided because my feelings are so strong about things and there is a temperature in these feelings that I can't articulate to you, but I'm not going to let you tell me that that's not what should be. Um, I am very stubborn, but also the practicality of it is that my package, this is very easy to digest. I'm not a six foot tall man. I'm a blonde um, quirky, cutesy little female who has a child's voice. And it's why when I swear, it's sometimes funnier than other people because that's funny. Cause I, you know, have the air of a child sometimes. And it's funny because you don't think it should happen. Like my, uh, ability to, I think, commit to taking stronger risks and possibly making a wave based on what I think is right is sometimes because, I have found that my package is, is digestible, you know, um, and that makes it easier for me. That's a bit of a silver spoon. And I can mm. acknowledge that 100%. Um, that's a b big privilege. That helps on the outside of it and probably like with the, the flywheel of keep of continuing to go. But like just having that, you said stubborn and the word that came to my head was kind of like dogged. Like it's like you have a belief, like a dog, like a dog with a bone. You're just like. I got this and I'm going to go with it. But like, how, where did that come from? I guess what happens is for some people, I guess it gets stomped out by a parent or somebody, but maybe that just never happened for you. Maybe it got support. It's like, Hey, you have an idea, go for it. Or yeah, maybe, or also that again, I think this goes with the, it draws back to the empath diagnosis, self-diagnosis. Let's be honest. <laughs> um, is that I can't distinguish very easily between I can't distinguish at all on my feeling scale. You could argue to me that uh, you are a separate human being than I am. We don't embody, we don't have the same body. We don't share the same body. We don't share the same life. We don't have the same education. Uh, and I don't even mean school-wise. I just mean like life. But I will tell you I can feel what you're feeling because I think I can. And maybe that's um, me being too emboldened and, 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 you know, but I think I can pretty easily walk in other people's shoes. And so I, I want what's good for them because I want what's good for me. It's, it's, it's a both selfless mm. and selfish ebb and flow. You can define it any way you want. I don't care because words don't constitute it. Words don't have any bearing on what it is. You can say it's mm. selfish. You can say it's selfless, but it's a bit of the, uh, the Buddhist mentality of if you're standing in front of a bus, I push you out of the way to save your life, not because you're you, but because you're me. You know? Yeah. Do you feel that, Rodney? Because you are oh, very yeah. much like it. Yeah. I've always like it's always been confusing to me how much we hurt each other. I'm like, but that like you win, I win. Like it's just that's all it's just been the feeling and having to explain that to people is very hard to me. So And Rodney, do you find what I find, which is that it's certainly harder to do that of your me, I'm you with people that have uh, 
seemingly malicious intentions, but when applied, this, let's call it a superpower, an empathy superpower, it can be applied and you can see where their fear is coming. It's just a lot fucking harder when they're hurting the people around them. Um, but it can be done. And I think uh, of people that have it, Rodney, like it's almost required of us. Yes. I, I, I almost find it easier. Really? With them. Like the time, like Keith, like the time I had drinks with the KKK member, like, yeah. Hello. <laughs> my, I think my wife hates it. Cause we'll be sitting watching a movie and like the bad guy or like the person that's going through the most struggle or who's like the dick in the relationship. I'm like, yeah, but they're hurting because of like how their mom treated them. Like I can see that like, and, and I'm not, I'm not meaning to excuse it, but I, no. I see it and I feel it. It's almost easier. And then like, cause some of the other lighter feelings I conflate with my own, like I, I'm, I'm just now at 38 learning how to separate between mine and theirs. So uh -huh. you talk about the codependent struggle. Um, but yeah, I almost, I almost find it easier with the extreme cases. Interesting. That's also like there, you know, my mother-in-law who is wonderful. Uh, when I first met her, I think we, she says things that are so not said and so profound and at, at face value, you could bristle, but upon further thought, you could think, wow, she is pretty evolved. Like we'll be watching the news and let's say there's someone who killed three people, you know, and let's say it, it's a man and she'll say, you know, I have so much compassion and sadness for the families who lost their loved ones. And in addition, someone brought that man as a little boy home from the hospital and someone lit a cigar and someone was like, we had a boy. There was a sentiment in his life at one point that existed and somewhere along the lines, bad things happened, trauma happened, choices happened. But again, that's not excusing his behavior, sure. but you can acknowledge that when we're born, we're all so vulnerable to this crazy roller coaster. And it's really sort of a crapshoot about what you're exposed to, you know? And some people don't have the fortitude to in the, fa I mean, very rarely, like I've met so few people that when I, you know, read their story, like Susan Burton, do you guys know who Susan Burton is? She's Miss no. um, Burton. She runs a, uh, an organization out here in LA called A New Way of Life reentry project. And she's actually, I met her because we were looking through with Happy Dance, this uh, CBD skincare uh, company that I started. There, I have no desire just to start companies for financial gain. Like, and I tell my partners that in the beginning, I'm like, I'm going to be very blunt. I don't need a Miller paycheck. <laughs> okay. We're going to start. I'm okay. On, okay. I'm good. I'm cool. I can buy the things that I want. Um, but if we're going to do this, we're going to do it for some awesome reasons and we're going to do it right. And I want to give 1% of the company away. And so we were looking for a recipient who did great work and uh, we felt it was very powerful to choose uh, Miss Burton's reentry project because so many of the women that she was serving were in uh, jail on um, drug charges and marijuana charges that sort of should be completely squashed at this point but right. oh miss burton um runs uh she she got out of jail she was in and out of jail six times she hit rock bottom she got into rehab she was aghast and slack-jawed at the fact that she had to go to rehab in a white santa monica suburb and was like where the hell is this on the streets where i grew up she grew up in downtown la like where's this facility she went home. She got her life together. She started meeting women who were getting out of jail at the bus stop as they were dropped off. And she heard awful things coming from like the guards that dropped them off saying, we'll keep your bed warm. See you next time. Just like disgusting behaviors. And she'd go up to them and she'd go, I got a three bedroom house. Want to come live with me? I got two hands. I can help you. And it started there. She now has 10 facilities. She helps women with everything they get. She helps them pro bono work to get their kids back. She helps them get jobs. It's her, but in reading her memoir, Becoming Miss Burton, um, her life 
I don't know how I would have fared. What was I exposed mm. to all that? I mean, it is a fucking ride that she has been on and around every corner has been someone trying to take advantage of her in every sense of the word. And yet she rose from the dust of that with this idea to go, you know, what I'm going to do is just dust off myself a little bit and see who else I can help. And I think that not many people are built with that kind of fortitude. So when you find them, it's, it's, it's pretty profound. There's so much there. I also mean that in the sense that I'm comparing my story to her, like, sure, I'm I now support a new way of life reentry. And so does she, but we've had very, very different roads to get there. And like I said before, a lot of mine, I'm not immune to the fact that I've had a silver spoon. I'm not immune to the fact that my life has been way, way, way easier. We arrived at the same point, but I just think the people that I sort of salute and, and just bow down to are the people who have been through it all and still come out with this positive attitude. Does the empath, does the empath in you connect to her life so like this is something i've thought about a lot is this idea i don't think trauma is necessary to get like to do the things that you want in life you mentioned you alluded to this before um because i i mean big you know little t trauma big t trauma like there there there's a degree of it but like real like she experienced does your empathy put you in a place to feel that trauma so thus you don't need to live it yourself? Um, I would say yes. And I will say this all with the caveat of my pretend living it is in mm -hmm. no way comparable to someone actually living fair it. Enough. Start by saying that. Fair. Yeah. But yeah. yes. And sometimes I can get lost in that. Like there was a, a, a period a couple years ago where I was very, very um, overwhelmed by what was happening in Syria. And mm -hmm. I mean, it's still happening, but there was a mm -hmm. point where I was following every. It was all Syrian, over the news and the yeah, videos and everything. Every Syrian Twitter account, every possible organization I was supporting. And I was sitting, you know, I'd sit in bed and cry about it, about what was happening. And this is the lesson here for me is that different types of personalities are valuable and necessary. And if everybody thought like us, we'd be fucked. Because if mm. everybody thought like Kristen, we'd all be sitting in our bed crying about Syria <laughs> with no action steps planned, you know, <laughs> with zero action steps. And my husband yeah. looked at me and he said, <clears throat> You're being really selfish right now. And I was like, what? I'm being, I'm feeling, nobody, but he was right. He said, you're sitting in your bed crying about these kids right now. What the hell are you doing for them? He goes, if you really care about them like you say you do, get off your ass and start doing something. I know you're donating money, but do something else. Do more. And also don't lose your life, the beauty of your life, which is, you know, don't be, don't be mindlessly thinking about dead Syrian kids when you're sitting with your kids at the dinner table. Mm -hmm. Like, don't, mm -hmm. like, don't lose the beauty in your life. Honor everyone's existence by celebrating yours as well. But he was correct in saying, do you think that your nighttime tears and pity is helping anyone? Mm -hmm. And I was like, checkmate, sir, you're correct. I'm going to get up now. And because again, my expressed goal was to help. And I was lost in the midst of too much feeling and the weight on my shoulders because it was just, it's so atrocious what was and is happening over there. And I think that those different types of personalities are really necessary to bring you in. And, and then there's certain times where I say to my husband, you're not feeling a true emotion about this. You're coming at it really logistically and really practically. And you need to look at it from start thinking about this issue without words is sometimes what I'll say. Don't think about it with words. Think about it just with feeling. Mm. This mm. feeling, and then this feeling, and then this feeling. And don't explain what the other person did. Mm. Um, so yes, I do feel like it has been beneficial for me that whatever I am forced to feel, whether I want to or not, really allows me to uh, look at and, and have a respect for someone else's life, even though I haven't necessarily lived it. The 
the piece that where he said you weren't helping anybody, I feel like kind of defines the other edge of the sort of being an empath where sometimes you can't control them. If you don't know it, you can't control how much you're feeling, what somebody else is feeling. How, how do you manage that? Yeah, I work out. I work out for my mental health. hundred percent. I have to get my blood pumping every day. Um, for at least 10 minutes. And sometimes it's just 10. Sometimes it's just mm. like, you know what? I'm going to do a couple sets of squats and my blood is going to be pumping and I'm done. Sometimes it's a 40 minute, but regardless, I know that I am not going to be as strong or as resilient is a better word as resilient mentally against the, uh, bubble that I sort of need to keep my safety bubble to have my wits about me because I am, I know that I am at risk of just feeling everything and getting lost and drowning in that. And then I'm of use to nobody and that's not my expressed goal. So I definitely take, um, getting my heart rate up very seriously. I also, um, make lists. If I'm really in a, in a place of feeling depressed about something, I will make a practical list of what's on my plate right now. No one, you know, currently it'd be, no one has COVID. My, no one in my immediate family, my pod has COVID. Uh, that's a major plus my kids are doing all right with zoom. They're not fighting today. Uh, my husband said that we'd order burritos tonight. Also, like, you know what I mean? Like all the little things. And then if I, if I can't find anything on that list, that's really bad, I know that I'm allowed to disconnect. And, you know, my, um, my friend Mm. Holly, who's a masseuse and she's, she, you know, we talk a lot about the fact that she works on people and, you know, masseuses are sometimes like therapists too, right? Cause they listen to you vent and they, yep. like a hairstylist, they, they're your therapist as well. My favorite person. Yeah. And sometimes <laughs> she says that she'll hear people that either have so much stress or so much anxiety or so much whatever. And she doesn't want to take that energy that when she leaves them, she will physically make a scissor um, uh, shape with her fingers um, and cut her in front of her belly button. And she'll yeah. say, I'm snipping it. That's, I am no oh. longer have to be connected to that person's emotions. And that's been oddly really helpful for me. No, mm. that makes a lot of sense. And the thing you just mentioned that part, there are days where I sit down and I'm like, I can't find something. And then it kind of starts a shame spiral for me. Cause I'm a pretty happy, positive dangerously optimistic person and i'm like why can't i find something like what's wrong with me and i never thought about that being an indicator that i need to i need to go meditate i need to go take a whatever it is that's helpful you need to open your what well what i do at those moments when i'm like oh shit everything i wrote down is fucking awesome what is my problem i I say, well, then it's time to open your toolbox. And within your toolbox, this is something I also talk about with my kids a lot of like, this is a tool. We, we, we identify when things are tools to help us through hard situations and tools can be a book. We have this great set of books called, um, a spot of, and it's a spot of love, a spot of, um, uh, anxiety, a spot of, it's all these little spots and you talk about when one spot gets too big, it crowds the other spots and how to make sure that your peaceful spot is the biggest spot. So that's a tool for them. Screaming into a pillow is a tool. Going on a run is a tool. Taking a walk around the block is a tool. For me, getting on the treadmill is a tool. Um, meditating is a tool. So for me, when I, when my list doesn't match up with my mental state, it just means I have to open my toolbox Again, the irony here is that I'm so emotional and yet all the things I apply are practical, mm-hmm. you know? No, that, it's a, I mean, it's that a makes good sense because, yeah. like, the journey, like, a, a bridge journey, like, I'm an engineer, I'm very, very logical, but I'm an empath. So, like, I just ignored my emotions for a long time, which was not healthy and caused many problems. What I see now is, like, emotions, my gut, my feel, logic it's all data. Like it's all, it can all be used to tell me what's going on in the world. So, and then which tools to apply. So that makes a lot of, lot of sense. Keith, you, you have a point cause I want to ask a question. It's an interesting counterbalance. It's like, um, using, you know, your spouse to say, Hey, get your shit out of the way. Like I'm a very emotional person. My wife is a, an engineer at personality level. Um, so like the, that logical, like just having that counterbalance. Whereas if you dove into it emotionally, 
you would never, you would never, yeah, ever come I'd up never come up. No, I'd never yeah, come up. Never come up. And again, what, that's like what a what a great lesson in the fact that you do yeah. need two sides. Yes. Two sides balance the scale. Mm, yes. And and again, like what you were talking, we were talking about in the beginning of this idea that it has to be an us and them, us versus them. It's not us versus them. It's it it is kind of us and them being necessary. My my type of personality, along with my husband's type of personality, is is necessary, you know, and this is, and that's the whole reason that, you know, I, this children's book I wrote called, yeah. um, uh, the world needs more purple people was this, it came from a, a, a personal experience with my friend Ben of really seeing a very polarizing political culture seep into our kids daily lives. And we wanted to create some, like a, a roadmap and some language to help and, that we didn't want our kids looking around and seeing enemies. We wanted them seeing complex, necessary conversations and just not fights. So we wanted a social identity that positioned them towards their fellow humans. So, you know, it's not lost on the adults that, of the metaphor of like red plus blue equals purple. And this is obviously with the caveat of sanity coming from both sides. <laughs> um, but we we tried to, in the book, come up with the things that linked us all together. Like what are the five inarguable characteristics that both sides of the scale can agree upon? And if we start there, then we can have some important conversations about how to keep everyone happy. And that goes with my, my, my kids too. Like, I'm like, before you start just fighting with your sister, tell me three things you have in common with her. Mm. Right. You know, so you start from a place of identifying another human individual in front of you whose story may be very different than your own and that's okay but like in the book we identified that like asking really great questions using your voice being a really hard worker laughing a lot and being totally and uniquely you we're all completely agreeable like no one in the world's going to be like you should not laugh a lot that's terrible you know but, I hope but it's, not. <laughs> I hope no way. Or you should never be uniquely you. You know, you yeah. should be all of these things. But the the goal of that book was to show that both sides aren't that sides are sometimes necessary. They just cannot be conflated with this with enemies or us versus them. And it's the same thing of like you know the Adam Grant talks about the you know these these red and blue maps we keep showing mm -hmm. on TV all the time. Mm -hmm. It's incredibly deceiving. It's a purple map. It is a mm -hmm. purple map. And, mm -hmm. and until we start viewing it as such, we're never going to get out of this tantrum headspace. Now it's, it's, it's hard because there are real issues for real human beings at stake. Like the treatment of some individuals has got to change period. Mm -hmm. But there, but in order to get there, the fighting, which just leads to infighting and devouring each other, can't be the starting point. You know, we've forgotten that, like, we are literally on the same team. We're on the same team, we have different principles on mm -hmm. how to get there. Mm -hmm. and it's like, right. And once we identify that we have the same go expressed goals, once we just start there, then we can discover the nuance of how to get there. Okay, well, yours seems better than mine. Okay, mine seems better than yours. Or maybe we still disagree, but we're not wringing each other's necks over it. This, this sentiment of winning, that's what it's come down to. My side wins versus we all win. Like, yeah. you know, 50, you know eight, eight, 75 million people vote for Trump and 82 million people vote for, for Biden. That doesn't mean everybody who voted for Biden suddenly wins. And then what happens to the 75 million other people? If they actually feel like they lost, well, you see what happens. A hundred percent. One of my favorite bosses in the whole wide world is Mike Schur. Mike Schur created Parks and Rec and Brooklyn Nine-Nine and worked on The Office for many years. And he created The Good Place. And we have been soul sisters for 20 years, I believe. But I share so many things in common with him. Um, but he's got this uh, mentality on set that best idea wins. And if you, and, and from my professional opinion as a working actor, best idea wins is a great way to operate because it doesn't matter if the joke pitch or the camera angle pitch comes from the best boy dolly grip or craft service. If it's the best one, it wins. And yeah. it's the idea that wins. It's not us it's not me there's no credit 
And, you know, I just have had such a fascinating um, time watching him work because everyone loves working for him. Like, it's almost like gross. Like everyone in Hollywood's like, Oh my God, he's the nicest guy. And I'm like, I know, I know. (laughs) But I think that he does that's unique is he makes it his mission to uplift people around him. He really, he attempts to go that prop master is so awesome at her job. My next job, I'm going to give her a production designer. That's Mm. what I'm going to do. Like he, he makes it his mission to raise people up. Um, and I just, I just think that's fascinating. And I think if we, if we thought a little bit more like Mike, sure, the, the world would be a better place. Ego, ego is a bitch. Like, oh my God, it's the worst. It is such a bitch, right? Like that idea that need that my idea was the one that won, not the idea itself. It was me that that's created right. it. So I want and all the credit. So uniquely human though, right? We also just like the only way we can't get into a shame spiral about it. Like the only way to do is just yeah. laugh at it. Like, yeah. oof, I got my britches were tight today i was puckered all day you mentioned the book we've, we've kind of talked about cbd company we didn't talk about hello bello yet but you you've got some things that you're into and you kind of talked about your philosophy a little bit like you're not just starting companies to start companies i want to go into that a little more like well i think that as a, uh, before I was ever an entrepreneur, I was just a creative who was reading scripts, right? And deciding, is this project that's going to have to wake me up at four in the morning for the next six months, months worth my time? Like, as is my passion going to be sustainable or am I going to feel like I'm on some show that became a soap opera that I didn't care about the storylines? Like, is the art involved here? Is the statement I'm making about this character is the, and I, or sometimes it's just, is the entertainment value high enough? I always had to judge what I would look at and attempt to be considered for as an actor from a creative perspective. And then the financials came after that. And then the, you know, all the, all those follow-up considerations. But the first primary one was, can I wake up at four in the morning for this project in a meaningful way, will I want to for the next six months? And I think that it it practiced me, it created this habit of looking at things from a big picture perspective of, I, I have something personal that's called my deathbed test, where if I'm ever in a tough decision, um, I think when I'm on my deathbed, actually my deathbed, my vitals are failing. I'm, 160 years old, my skin still looks great, all the things, <laughs> right? Um, I'm smooth as a peach, but my, yeah, my organs so, are failing. I mean, you still look 21. Oh. Like, it's, look, it's, science, you, science can only do so much. It, it, it can't keep the organs um, going, right? Like, um, Will I have wanted to make, made, will I have wanted to make X decision, right? Whether that's giving a family member some money, whether that's being involved in X project, whether that's starting this company, my deathbed test. And, and Cher actually said one of the most profound things to me one time, because she's so dope. And I worked with her on this movie called Burlesque. And I just love her so dearly. She said, if, if it doesn't matter in five years, it doesn't matter. And, and again, this is in direct combat to my emotional state of being, which tells me the feeling that you're feeling right now, here and now is the most important thing and you must follow it. Mm-hmm. But I can't exist like that until I apply some practicality. And sometimes the practicality is the math of my deathbed test. And so with any of these endeavors, if there was like just creating something, if there wasn't something that would actually get me out of bed in the morning, like the first entrepreneurial venture I had was this uh, bar company called uh, This Saves Lives. And it's for each bar sold, we um, give a life-saving packet of this stuff called Plumpy Nut to a a child with severe acute malnutrition somewhere in the world, sometimes Mm -hmm. here. Um, And we uh, rely on our giving partners to identify where that is because we're like, we don't know the countries that need it uh, or the corners of the world that need it. But they're great bars. They're sold everywhere. And we are making a dent in severe acute malnutrition. And that was the goal of like, people want to grab a bar and put it in their purse. Why not have a line of bars where one says this helps save a child, you know? Um, and then the second one was Hello Bello. And 
Dax and I had no intent on like start launching a company, but it, it, it wasn't lost on us being from Detroit. He's from Detroit as well. Um, Mm -hmm. and we both grew up with, you know, uh, not the means we are living with today. And it, when I got pregnant, we went to cute little boutiques in LA and New York and bought really awesome premium safe, non-toxic baby care products. And it felt nice. And we just got home and we were like, fuck, why can't everybody do this? This seems so unfair. And we were just filled with the sort of righteous rage of the fact that, you know, health and efficacy in the baby space wasn't taken as seriously as we wanted to. Now, there's a lot of companies now doing great work in the baby space, but we were seeing one missing link, which was price point, and that no one should have to choose between their baby or their budget. They should be getting an absolute safe, premium, wonderful baby care product, and it should not have to affect their bottom line as a family. And there are, and I work with baby to baby out here, and there are so many stories of, you know, one in three mothers struggles to buy food or diapers that it makes me want to puke every time I say that, but it's a reality. And we thought, okay, how can we leverage our celebrity for lack of a better description with someone that has uh, accessibility and economy of scale? And so we thought about it from a business perspective, but we kept that creative passion there of like, we want this at a low price point to be the highest quality product in the stores people can access. We don't want it in boutiques in LA and New York. That's not our expressed goal. So it was like, we like to, we sum it up by saying it's your mom's ingredients at your dad's prices. <laughs> um, and then with, um, with uh, Happy Dance, I had found that I relied upon CBD so much. I felt such a change in my life when I started using it. And I felt a responsibility because I talk about anxiety and depression a lot. And I talk about working out a lot and all, all of the things that I talk about, people struggle. And I thought, you know what, CBD to me makes me feel like I am just, just turning the thermostat to the perfect temperature in my life. Or I'm just, my kid's volume goes down a little bit when I use it. (laughs) You know what I mean? And I thought, well, that's worth putting on the shelves. But again, there are a lot of great CBD companies, but the, it was the accessibility that was my main focus. So I was like, I want this on the shelves at drugstores. I want this on the shelves at your local place, not a boutique in LA and New York. And so every venture that I've had, or, you know, I never thought, I mean, I can barely string a sentence together. God knows how long I've been talking in this run on sentence. I mean, you're you're certainly stringing a lot of good sentences together and we're listening. So, but with little to no punctuation, punctuation doesn't exist in my brain with the world needs more purple people. I was like, I don't know how to write a children's book. My friend Mm -hmm. Ben and I were like, there is something that needs to be said because we feel this hole in our kids that we, every time we turn on the TV, no matter how much we talk about the fact that we're trying to make a, you know, things good for everyone, they see this division. And how do we give language to that? And it was a very deliberate decision to write a children's book because if we had written an adult nonfiction book, we'd never get the kids. But if Mm -hmm. you write a children's book, chances are you're going to get an adult reading it with them. And I'm not saying this is required reading for everyone in the Senate and the the government, but but it kind of is. Check it out. Check it out. Wink. Wink. There's always a mission underneath the mission, I guess. And it's, and I quantify it by what wakes me up in the morning. Is it important enough to wake me up in the morning? Cause I love sleep. So it better be important. Where on earth does your self-awareness come from? I, my, my instinct about where it comes from is an intense paralyzing desire to be liked. Mm. I think it all stems from an insecurity. And I think that I'm okay with that. You know, when I'm talking to my therapist who I love more than life and just helps right size things for me. Love my therapist. We, yeah, the best. We, um, I'm okay with the fact that I'm codependent. I just need to keep it in check so it doesn't run away from me. But I actually think a lot of beauty comes out of codependency because there is this umbilical cord to me and all other people. And I care about that. And I care about it for a selfish reason because I want to be liked, because I want to be treated nicely, because I want to be loved. And it comes from a very selfish desire. 
but its execution ends up being looked at as very selfless and oftentimes benefits those around me. And I don't necessarily see the problem with the confluence of both the selfish and the selfless there, but I think it comes out of Mm. a paralyzing desire to be liked. There is definitely a, because to a degree we have to all be codependent. Like, right. There are good, there are good pieces to it for sure. I mean, we're, we're human. Like we are a social creature. We have, we are codependent, like functionally we are codependent. Like you can't survive this world on your own. Like if you try, you're in the woods somewhere and you are some utility tool and you're lonely and depressed and might, might, right. right? Have you guys seen alone that show? No. Oh my God. Drop everything. There's one season that I think is on Netflix and the other ones are on Hulu. I think it was a history channel show and it's called alone. And like, I mean, I love all those naked and afraid survivor, whatever. I love naked but, and afraid. Oh, the best. But this one's called alone and it's one person with 10 tools that sent to, you know, the season that we watched was in like the Arctic and it was 75 miles off the line of insert, whatever word it is here, the line where trees stop growing, like on the planet Mm. and they have to survive. And the first like week or two, the first two weeks is them, you know, struggling to like kill a squirrel and eat it and make their shelter. And then the next month is watching someone go mentally insane because they are alone. It is Mm. actually watching the human brain devolve into a pile of mush and ramble and go crazy. And it is it is such a uh, psychological study, I think. And that, you know, the, the, the prize of the show is won because if you can survive the longest, and you, you they have medical checks, so you're removed if your weight gets too low and whatnot. Um, but you, you don't know how long other people are lasting. So you just have to sort of wait it out with no, um, like no other people around you saying, you only have two more days to go. Like once mm. everybody is uh, either surrenders or is taken off the show if you're the last person you win a, a prize but it it was a very uh intense to watch and it, it was a reminder of what you know herd creatures we are we are we are codependent creatures we need other people because you watch these people go nuts and in that you ever Becky, in that sentiment of selfishness versus selflessness and and it kind of goes into this space of doing the right thing but it's the right thing for you and if it's not the right thing for somebody else it doesn't mean it's the wrong thing mm-hmm. um that idea that taking care of yourself before you take other other people is is important like we have to be far more accepting of the idea of there's a difference between selfishness at the expense of other people versus selfishness in order to be your best with other people right with and, the benefit of the group in mind and i don't care yeah. how you label it if it's selfish or selfless if everybody's benefiting we use selfish as a bad thing and it's it doesn't have to be mm-hmm. selflessness can be a bad thing if you are nothing but selfless happiness it's it's also a lesson in that every type of personality has a value right because if i didn't have my husband i would not have been able to uh take on the sort of armor i need uh with my with my own codependency right and make decisions that because like i take on too much and like you know i'll take on these projects and then i'll commit to every possible philanthropic endeavor and like all these things and he's like hey remember me your husband remember this wedding ring remember the two children that are in the other room that want some of your attention and i know you're saving the world quote but can you give us some attention like the balance it's it's a reminder that with everything and this goes for why we wrote uh the world needs more purple people both are beneficial viewpoints that need to be analyzed and sort of combined i need my husband to snap me out of things and he needs me to remind him that it can be really fun to take on a philanthropic endeavor. And it might not have been his instinct, but we can benefit from helping someone else. It's not really ever the other, it's not ever the, um, it's not binary. It's Mm -hmm. always sort of in the middle. And we need each other to balance all of it. So this whole thing around self-awareness and there's this, aspect of your public life with your relationship you talked about resent at some point um 
And what I would really like this idea of wallowing for three days about the, the selfless feelings of an entire people across the globe to that space where Dax comes in and says, get your shit together. Like you are not helping anybody, which in of itself is a selfish thing, right? Like on the surface, right? It's like, come back here. Let's be back. It's that balance of selfish and selflessness. And your response in the story is you're right. Yeah. Instead of building resent towards him to say, why don't you feel more for those people? How do you two avoid resent being built up? You have, well, I believe you have a mutual respect for the fact that every individual living on this planet is a mosaic of their own experiences. Hmm. So you, you have to know that even though you, this is how I view it. I'm connected with an umbilical cord to everyone, but their mosaic is different than mine. Their traumas are different than mine. Their ACE score is different than mine. You know, the, the score that you take about childhood uh, trauma. trauma. Yeah, 100%. Their ACE yeah. score is different. And that will cause and effect lead to different uh, feelings that they're having about issues that might not affect me or, or do affect me and don't affect them. They're, everyone is a mosaic of their own experiences. So I can't, if I'm being truly respectful in the dictionary definition of the word, ask him to think like me. But what mm. I can do is start with trust. And I wouldn't have put this ring on my finger if I didn't trust him. Mm. So I, I start with trust. I also think resentment, expectations are resentments waiting to happen. That's an old AA saying. Mm-hmm. Expectations are resentments waiting to happen is an incredibly powerful mantra, right? I have an expectation that my kids won't fight. Don't have that expectation. They're going to fight. And I'm just going to be resentful mm. if they do. Mm. The, the other applicable quote that I think instead of me rambling that describes this best is uh, Eleanor Roosevelt said, no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. And I just don't mm. consent. I'm not going to feel inferior because I am the way I am. And I hope that if I apply that to myself, I would give mutual respect to every other human being. Do you understand his love languages? Oh, yes. And we have the antithesis of love language each other his love language is very physical he's sitting on the couch next to you he wants a hand on a hand or a hand on a knee or an arm he wants you to be sort of touching his earlobe or hand on the back of his neck like he and and i am a person that i love that sometimes and other times i want my solo time my introvert wants to not be touched i just want to sit here and i want to be in my own little cocoon my love language is thoughtfulness. And like, if you get home from work 30 minutes before I do, and you order me a burrito, I've never felt more love. Acts of service. Yeah. Oh mm. my God. Acts of service. And yeah. his, uh, his love languages are just different. I have numerous times been like, but I ordered you that those ribs you love from John and Vinny's and it didn't occur to you that I thought about you and loved you. And he's like, that's not how yeah, I, I love. That's yeah. not, yeah, yeah, that's not at all. Mine is connected. His, I receive love. his is yeah. eye contact and his is um, participating uh, a new show that quality we're watching. time, quality, quality time. time, big time. And you know, we've helped, we've helped our kids identify that so that they can know how they need to best be loved and also how to best love the people in our family. So I did an exercise with them one time where I said, how do you think your sister needs to be loved? And they each had to say it. And then I let the other one talk. I said, how do you think you need to be loved? And we discovered that, um, you know, one of them uh, is very much just like Dax. She's participatory. Doing an activity with her is her love language. Building Legos with her for 20 minutes a day makes her feel more loved than anything in the world. And I think it's really important for us to especially give kids the language at a young age to know when they feel loved so that they can know how to ask for it and Mm. also how to identify the ways that others need to be loved. Because if you just keep trying to do what works for you on other people, you're not going to really have successful relationships. So you have to identify simultaneously, again, this is the yin and the yang, the sides of the scale. You have to identify the connection between you and your other human beings and also the differences. It seems like y'all are really, 
really good communicators. Um, has that always been the case in your relationship? Nope, 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 <laughs> nope, 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 nope. What happened was I grew up for, you know, umbrella terms, generalizations, a goody goody in Detroit, and he was a recovering drug addict. Okay, so very different things that trigger us. Mm-hmm. I grew up being told there is good and there is bad. People that do drugs are bad. There is life is black and white. And now I see the whole world is gray. So when we met him telling stories about his drug abuse, which he found very comical because he didn't do it anymore. And, you know, oh, my God, that time I missed Christmas because I was too high. And I'm like, what I was I was bottoming out like that was the scariest thing I'd ever heard. And he wrote this movie about a guy and a girl who live in a small town and she discovers that he's in witness protection and they have to go on the run from the bad guys. And on the run, she discovers he was part of the bad guys and he turned on them. So her trust in him completely evaporates because he's one of the quote unquote bad guys. And it was a metaphor for the entire lack of trust I placed in him in the beginning of our relationship and our, thankfully we have a wonderful therapist out here named Harry who um, helped us work through why trust triggered me so much and also what he could do to still be who he is, which is a person who sometimes tells a story about when he missed Christmas, you know? Um, but also like the, the practical language that Harry said is I think what she's missing is you say how it was, oh, this funny story, drugs, I missed Christmas, ha, ha, ha. But you don't add the last sentence, which is how it is now. And that's what I was missing. And Harry said, if you, Kristen, were hearing how it is now, would you be able to provide more trust because you're getting more of the full picture? Meaning Dax could say this story that scared me, and then he'd go, wow, I'm so glad I don't do that anymore. And I was Mm. like, yes, that's Uh, all I need to hear. Mm. How it was and how it is now. You almost heard it like it was a wistful, like, I wish I was back in that. Yeah. I was placing so much value on the. You were assuming his, his intentions. Exactly. And once he started adding the, how it is now sentence, I was able to get over it. Now that, I mean, that's a variety of issues that we had in the beginning, but yes, we've both again, tried to work from the solution backwards. Like we enjoy spending time together. I want to be on the porch with him when I'm 85, but how do we get from the solution backwards? Well, we have to get tools in our toolbox, right? We have to learn how to communicate and that's not always winning. Learning how to communicate has nothing to do with winning. So what do I need to communicate with this man to allow him to be who he is in the fullest, which is a guy that sometimes shares crazy stories, but also feel safe. And he was willing to do that for me. And I've been willing to do things for him. And you just have to, I think identifying your partner's love languages and your partner's triggers are the two best pieces of advice for trying to stay married. So my wife and I, my love language and her love language, our primary, are words of affirmation. Like we're both good on that. It's settled. Like we stabilize. That's normal. But then her like 1B, 1C, and 1D are acts of service. And some of the other ones are about giving in in. For me, those are all 4B, 4C, 4D, and I'm all about quality time. So what ends up happening is you you look for yours, and if you don't get it, you resist giving, and then you get less. And then it creates this rift in a relationship that's seemingly unreconcilable, but ultimately has to come down to this selflessness, selfishness balance. If you want yours, give theirs. And I struggle to appreciate my wife who likes to feel appreciated for doing the dishes. Because for me, I don't care if you appreciate. Like, that's my responsibility. And when she thanks me for it, I'm like, okay. Like, okay, cool. But not reciprocating that means then I don't necessarily get the quality time when we're sitting and watching TV. Right. I mean, I will say you're, you're dead on. You have to have, you have to start with a mutual respect for the other human being that's in front of you and a reminder of, you know, we, we went through one fight. We did this movie, went in Rome three months into dating and we moved into an apartment in New York together, which was a hot mistake. <laughs> and um, we lived together and we're both very strong personalities. So we fought, I mean, I can't imagine that the neighbors didn't call the cops. Like mm. we were screaming at the top of our lungs. And again, 
the gr- the great thing about Dax is as as big as he is and as intimidating as he is, I feel utterly safe with him. I I can get up in his face and I can scream and I'm never worried that my I'm in danger. I mean, he might slay me with some comments, but I can handle that. But like he was talking to Harry and he said one of the most profound things Harry ever said to him was um you know, when we agreed to do When in Rome, the producer, who was a good friend of Dax's, said, we've already cast Kristen. I want to cast you, but I cannot have couples drama on set. You cannot break up with this girl while the movie's happening. So if, if this relationship goes south, you got you to gotta hold through, right? You got to, for me, because I'm the producer, I'm your best friend, you got to make sure she's happy. You can't break up with her. And he was explaining this to Harry. And he said, you know, if, if, our producing friend didn't say that to me. I would have broken up with her, but I made a commitment and mm. I had to stick with it. And Harry goes, welcome to marriage. That's what it is. Right? It's the commitment. It's ha- your wedding ring is your producer friend that says, look, you just can't divorce this person right now. So it's, it, we've learned so much. I think that, that to me, it always comes back. The feelings are first. The math is second. The practical math. The practical math of knowing what your partner's love language is, knowing what yours is. I also really like to apply, which I've learned from Dax, the 12 steps in AA. I think those should be taught in kindergarten across the board because the idea of making amends, the idea of, you know, there's a the, one of the main through lines of AA is if you ever start to feel shame and pity, you got to immediately help someone else. If you start to feel like you're spiraling, you got to call a buddy and go, do you need any help moving this weekend? Can I do anything for you? You know what I mean? Like you have to be of service because it will pop you out of your situation so quickly. And that's exactly the applicable thing when you're saying, I got to give my wife her love language before I can receive mine. If we applied that more often, we would all be happier. And then I'll leave you with one of the other best things Harry's ever said to me, because he's such a gem. One time we were signing off uh, on therapy and he said, hey, uh, kid, do something nice today and don't get caught. Mm. Mm. Well, I could keep going. I really could. Well, first, let's wrap the podcast. Here, Roddy will ask the last question and then I'll, I'll go through that. Okay. Yeah, even though you like you you like did it. It's like you were reading my mind. Um, we always like to ask. Well, thank you, thank you so much for your, to the graciousness of your time and your your energy, your spirit. Like this has been dope. Uh, it's been super dope. Um, the last question. So the last voice is always our guest, and we want to know like what would you leave this audience with? The permission to feel all the feelings. To get lost in them, but only momentarily. And then to apply the practical math to receive and do better in the world. That may not apply to everyone who's not an empath, but I can sort of only, I only have the ability to speak from my position. Um, And that is what I would say if anyone is possibly struggling with any of the things I struggle with. The permission to feel it and then the drive to find the math to get yourself out of it. Mm-hmm.